Well, in our recent studies in Deuteronomy, I have to say I feel a little bit like a skipping record in my redundancy. The section of the book we find ourselves in is a portion in which Moses is reiterating some of the stipulations of the law that he had previously given to the children of Israel some four decades prior to the book of Deuteronomy, back in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. These laws are difficult for us to make sense of, especially as we try to kind of bridge the cultural context and not just the cultural context, but being that we are 3,000 plus years after Moses, trying to bridge that time distance and that cultural separation makes some of the stuff that we're going to see in these passages or have seen to this point rather bizarre for us. For example, today in the text that is before us, we are going to see statutes from Moses having to do with emasculated men, nocturnal emissions, uh, where you can and cannot go to the bathroom within the camp of Israel. We're going to deal with runaway slaves and ritual harlotry. And then charging interest for loans is also covered in this passage here in Deuteronomy chapter 23. And as much as I would like to make perfect sense of each of the strange stipulations that we find here in this passage and try to draw out kind of present day application, it really is not at all easy, especially as in some cases, the Hebrew language in some of these stipulations is so difficult that even the most well-versed scholars are kind of left scratching their heads when they come to passages like this. For instance, when we read in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, we read these words, He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. There are questions among scholars and commentators as to what exactly emasculated by crushing or mutilation really means. And then that's not the only extent of the questions. There are also further questions about how we should interpret that phrase, the assembly of the Lord. Emasculated seems basically clear to us. A man that has, shall we say, lost his manhood seems to be the person that is in focus here. But the question among scholars is, is this individual, this male, was this a person that was born this way? Or is this a person that became this way by accident? Or is this a person who emasculated himself? Or was maybe made a eunuch ritualistically? Or maybe even through captivity, that this person was taken as a prisoner of war and then they were made a eunuch, shall we say, as a result of being taken into captivity. There really is like no agreement among scholars on this point. So determining kind of a perfect meaning or what we might even call like a proper interpretation for this text is nearly impossible. And then on that phrase we have there in verse one of Deuteronomy chapter 23, where we read the assembly of the Lord. Again, there is question among scholars as to what does it mean the assembly of the Lord? Some scholars see this as simply being accepted among the nation of Israel, that the assembly of the Lord is dealing with the whole of the nation, all of the people of Israel. Then there are other commentators and scholars who believe that the assembly of the Lord was some sort of ruling or judicial body within the nation of Israel. And then there are still others that see this as speaking about appearing as the people of God before God at the tabernacle and then later on at the temple. So what exactly is the assembly of the Lord? There's just not a good consensus. There's not really agreement among commentators. And 
it really doesn't get any better from moving on from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1 to verse 2. In verse 2, we read, one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. So there's this idea of not entering the assembly of the Lord a second time. Even to the 10th generation, none of that person's descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord a third time. It would seem to us at first reading of it that it is a fairly clear statement. A child born to an unmarried mother, an illegitimate child, seems that that person cannot enter the assembly of the Lord. But again, we don't even know what the assembly of the Lord is. But it, it still seems like, well, it seems simple. Someone of illegitimate birth cannot enter into the assembly of the Lord. Except that the word translated for of illegitimate birth here in the original language that was originally written in Hebrew, the word that's translated of illegitimate birth is the Hebrew word mamzer. And it's only used one time in the Torah, this one time here in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2. And so its meaning is really hard to determine. There's no real clear agreement as to what it means. In fact, there's actually a term in linguistics for a word that only appears one time in a large body of texts. Linguists would call this a hapax legomena, which sounds kind of funny to us, but it, it means really just once spoken. It's Greek for once spoken. So a word that is only used one time is difficult to understand because you can't see how it is used elsewhere for context to try and understand. So in this instance, there is no way of knowing from the scriptures what the term mamzer means and that kind of uncertainty. It really kind of drives us crazy in our hyper know-it-all society that we live in today. We don't like to come to things where we just don't have a clear answer for it. But all we can say with certainty here is that we don't know what Memzer means or what it meant. But I think that we can be sure that Moses and those who were listening to him talk about this, they understood what it meant. And whatever Memzer was, they were not to enter the assembly of the Lord, this group of people, whoever they were. To the 10th generation, this person who was a descendant of a Mamzer was not to enter the assembly of the Lord, which to the 10th generation is just a long way of saying that they're never allowed to enter into the assembly of the Lord. Because of what we see in verse 3, we know that to the 10th generation means forever. The descendants of a Mamzer, whatever that is, cannot enter the, the assembly of the Lord forever. Look at verse 3. We read this. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. There's the third group of people that cannot enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, there's that idea again, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. It seems pretty clear, these first few verses from Deuteronomy chapter 23. If you are emasculated, castrated, whether it was done to you, you happen to be born without the ability to have the use of all of that sort of stuff, or you did it to yourself, you shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. If you are a Mamzer, whatever that means, or a Moabite, or an Ammonite, you shall not enter the assembly of the Lord ever. And again, the assembly of the Lord, it might be that you cannot be counted among the children of Israel, you're completely outcast from the nation of Israel, or you cannot go to the temple or the tabernacle, or you cannot serve within some sort of, you know, council of judicial council within the nation of Israel. We don't really know exactly what these passages mean. They're not all that clear, and therefore they're not really easy to apply. So when we come to passages like this, we start to wonder, like, 
Does this mean that this is totally pointless for us to even read through it? And sadly, there are some people who never really go through and teach through books like the book of Deuteronomy because they just don't see any application to our time and our situation. My problem is, is that I read passages like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is useful or profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness so that we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And because of that, I believe that there has to be something from Deuteronomy chapter 23 that God wants to speak to us. And so, is this passage pointless? Is it something we should just kind of move on from and go on to the book of Joshua or somewhere else and get out of the book of Deuteronomy? Well, obviously, if you have tuned in for any length of time here for Cross Connection Church Online, you know that I couldn't possibly bring myself to do that. So what exactly is the point of this passage? Well, if you look at just the opening verses here in Deuteronomy chapter 23, six times in the opening seven verses of Deuteronomy chapter 23, entrance into or association with the assembly of the Lord, whatever the assembly of the Lord might mean, that is mentioned six times in the opening seven verses. We don't understand the particulars perfectly as to the things that are mentioned here. We don't know fully what the assembly of the Lord is a reference to. We don't know what the illegitimate birth of Mamzer is. What does it mean to be emasculated by crushing here in this passage? What exactly are these things? We don't have all of the answers to those questions, but there is something that seems to be clear to me as I'm reading and thinking through this passage here in Deuteronomy chapter 23. And it's simply this, under the law, not everyone was permitted to appear before God. In religion, there are always what we might call purity tests. And that's what we find here in this passage, kind of a purity test. There are people who are not able to come before the presence of the Lord. They're either not able to be among the people of Israel, they're not able to come to the tabernacle or in later times the temple, or they're not able to serve within the ruling councils of Israel. They were separated and set apart from the people and they could not appear before the Lord. Look at what we read in verse nine. When the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. Again, we have these purity tests in passages like this. Simple interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 9. When you are in enemy territory or outside of the holy nation of Israel, Moses says to the people of Israel, you need to be on guard that you do not in any way harbor or take unto yourself any wicked thing. Religiously, there are people that become or are unclean. And there are not only people who become or are unclean, like the Moabites and the Ammonites or the emasculated individual or, you know, all these individuals in this passage, but there are also things that are counted as evil according to the law. So under the law, the people of God were to be untouched by those things that were unclean or wicked. They had to maintain purity. They had to be holy many times in the law. And when I say the law, I kind of capital L law in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, specifically Deuteronomy and prior to this Leviticus and Exodus, many times in the law, we see the call to be holy. For example, in Exodus chapter 11, verse 45, we read, for I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. God calls his people to be set apart. He calls them to be separated and holy. 
He calls them to be consecrated to him. Under the law, not everyone was permitted to appear before God. There are some people who were not holy or who had become unholy by touching something that was a wicked thing, like we saw there in verse 9 of chapter 23. There are purity tests for the people of God. And the statutes and judgments of the law, which we have been studying through here in the book of Deuteronomy, they were intended to make the people of Israel holy unto the Lord, set apart to the Lord. Again, from Leviticus chapter 11, we read, For I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Under the law, not everyone was permitted to appear before God, but also, under the law, holiness and separation from anything unclean was essential. Let me say that again. This is really important. This is something we clearly see in the text of Deuteronomy and throughout Leviticus and throughout Exodus. Under the law, holiness and separation from anything unclean was essential. So we read back in Deuteronomy chapter 23, beginning at verse 10 again, if there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night. So we don't really know exactly what that means, but you might be able to use your imagination. Some occurrence in the night, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp, but it shall be when evening comes that he shall wash with water, and when the sun sets, he may come into the camp. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out, and you shall have an implement, a tool, among your equipment, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. You have to cover up your poop. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. Well, those are certainly some interesting stipulations in God's law that Moses gives. He says that if you become unclean by an occurrence in the night, and that might be termed a nocturnal emission, which you can interpret for yourself if you need to, or it may be that there somehow in the night you soiled yourself, then as a result you are unclean and you have to go outside of the camp to separate yourself from the camp of God's people so that you can be made holy, so that you can be cleansed and return back into the camp the following day. And then if you need to relieve yourself, which we all do from time to time, then Moses says you need to go outside of the camp and you need to cover your refuse so that you can maintain purity within the camp. I don't think that it is all that unclear what is going on in here. Under the law, you must keep yourself from every wicked thing and be holy. Under the law, the requirements must be met to maintain purity and holiness. And this idea, this concept, it isn't unique to Moses, it isn't unique to the Torah, it isn't unique to the children of Israel, that under the law, requirements must be met to maintain purity and holiness. All human beings, everywhere, in every civilization, at every time throughout history, we are naturally religious. Every human is instinctively religious. Modern 21st century science even acknowledges and recognizes that we have a religious inclination. Some researchers have even called this the God gene, which means that even in a highly secularized society such as ours, we will be inclined toward religious thinking and ritualistic practices. Why is this? Well, the evolutionary biologist might say that this is a product of evolution, but the reality is we default toward religion because God has made us this way. It is hard-coded and programmed into us by our maker. And 
Just this last week, I saw a perfect example of this in the news. There is a theoretical physicist and kind of an outspoken evangelical atheist by the name of Lawrence Krauss, who wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal that was titled, Now Even Science Grants Must Bow to Equity and Inclusion. From the article, Krauss says this, starting in fiscal 2023, which began on October 1st, every proposal responding to a solicitation from the Office of Science is required to include a peer plan which stands for Promoting Inclusive and Equitable Research to describe the activities and strategies of the applicant to promote equity and inclusion as an intrinsic element to advancing science excellence. In the words of the announcement, the complexity and detail of the peer plan is expected to increase the size of the research team and the number of personnel to be supported. When I read this new requirement, Krauss says, I went back to the last grant proposal from our group, which involved exploring gravitational waves, the early universe, Higgs boson physics, neutrino cosmology, dark matter detection, supersymmetry, and black hole physics. What does any of this have to do with diversity and inclusion? Nothing. In the article, Krauss asks, are we at the point where the heart of the nation's scientific research enterprise is to be held hostage to ideology? Will the U.S. government refuse to fund major national laboratory initiatives to explore the forefront of fundamental and applied science because scientists show insufficient zeal for fashionable causes? Quite frankly, the answer is a resounding and clear yes. And why is this? And I would suggest to you it is because we are inherently religious. And now because the new secular religion in the West has a deep ideological woke worldview, there will be a woke religious purity test for admittance into the public assembly of our culture here in the West. And if you think that this is crazy, also in the news this last week was PayPal, the company that offers you the ability to send money online to various people. PayPal's most recent updated user agreement came under scrutiny this last week. Why? Because there are progressive purity tests and holiness requirements really which, if not met, might cost PayPal users up to $2,500 in the form of a fine. Now, PayPal is in the process of trying to walk back and reverse all these things that came out in this most recent user you know, agreement because it instantly cost them more than $5 billion in stock losses in the stock market. But the impulse to add a statute to their law code goes back to this desire that we all have or this impulse that is in every single one of us to be religious and to be holy. And under the law, the requirements must be met to maintain purity and holiness. Whether it was within the assembly of the Lord 3,400 years ago through the law code of Deuteronomy or within the assembly of the academy today in all of the universities and colleges across the country, or within the sciences to get funding from the national you know, resources to fund your laboratory experiments, or even within the corporate world. There are these purity tests that people give because we are all inherently religious. So Moses goes on here in this passage, adding more to the list of things that are abominable, things that are accursed, things that are to be separated from. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 17. There shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Because of the religious impulse that is in every single one of us, you will always feel the pressure to keep yourself from every wicked thing that you possibly could, whatever wicked thing might mean. 
And you can always expect that the list of wicked things, it'll always be an increasingly large list to the point that that list of things that are abominable and a curse that you have to keep yourself from, it becomes so large and heavy, it is too heavy to bear. And as I shared last week in my message, that's exactly the point. The list of abominations and wicked things is an ever-increasing burden until it breaks the backs of those who endeavor to bear it. According to the law, as we see in this passage, eunuchs have no place in God's assembly. Those of illegitimate birth, the memzer, whatever that means, they are excluded. People who come from the nation of Moab or Ammon, they are rejected. Prostitutes and perverts are shut out. Wicked things are accursed. Uncleanness must be purged. Holiness is required. 613. According to the experts of the Torah, the law of Moses, that ultimately would be the total number of the statutes and judgments of the law. 613 commandments. It's not just the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's not just the statute to love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus chapter 19. It's not only the Ten Commandments. That's just the beginning. 613 total commandments in the Torah. And in addition to the 613 commandments in the Torah, there are countless amendments and customs and traditions that would come from the rabbis and experts in the law for more than a thousand years after Moses. Under the law, the burden is greater than we can bear. But only if we assume that the law's purpose is to make us holy before a perfect God. You see, the heavy weight of the law, it's not intended to make us holy. The heavy weight of the law exposes our inability to bear it. It shows, just as the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament, that we are not and cannot be made righteous or justified by the works of the law. Under the law of Moses, we find ourselves in bondage to sin. We find ourselves bound by sin, leading to death. But the story doesn't end there. Nearly a thousand years after Moses, the prophet Isaiah writes these beautiful words in Isaiah chapter 56. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here am I, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast to my covenant. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. Some 800 years after Moses would give the law that says that eunuchs are separated from the people and the foreigners like Moabites and Ammonites cannot be a part of the assembly of the Lord. Some 800 years after Moses, Isaiah foresees a day when the foreigners, even the descendants of Moab and Ammon, find a place and a name within the assembly of the righteous. He foretells of a day when even the emasculated eunuch 
is brought near and not cut off. And just prior to those words in Isaiah 56, in verses 1 and 2 of the same chapter, Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing evil. Even if that person is a Moabite, an Ammonite, a Memzer, whatever that is, or someone who's emasculated. I cited it last week. And so I want to share it again because it's such an important thing. Paul in the New Testament book of Galatians, he, he asks the question, what purpose then is the law? What purpose does it serve? And then he gives such a great answer in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. That word justified, it means made righteous or made right with a holy and perfect God. You see, you and I, in and of ourselves, by the law, we will never be just and righteous. Galatians chapter 3 verse 11 says that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident for the just shall live by faith. The law is holy. The commandment is holy, just, and good, says Paul in the book of Romans. But the law is also a burden so great that we cannot bear it. Again, in the book of Romans, we read, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You see, what the law does, it does really, really well. It exposes unrighteousness by being a burden so great that you and I cannot bear it. And it looks forward to a day when righteousness and salvation are revealed only in Christ. Again, back to the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And here is the beautiful thing. The law of Moses, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses is powerful. It is powerful to reveal the extent to which we fall short of God's holy and righteous standards. But it isn't only the law of Moses, the Torah. It is also the law that is written upon our hearts in our conscience. Our conscience accuses us and it renders us guilty before God. And then you add to that the crazy moral codes that we devise in our cultures. They, too, become a burden so great that we cannot bear them. Whether it is the woke dictates of progressivism in 2022 or the crazy guidelines of our organizations and institutions and corporations, whatever sort of crazy moral standard that we devise, all of those become a burden too great to bear. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2, he says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judges. For in whatever you judge another, whether it's the moral standard of the law of God in the Torah, or it's the moral standard of your conscience upon your heart, or it's whatever moral standard you come up with in your, in your culture. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. You are unrighteous. You are not perfect or pure. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and you do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the richness of his goodness, his forbearance and long-suffering, knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? but in accordance with the hardness 
and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath for the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. If you try to live up to the 613 commandments of the Torah, you're completely sunk. And if you think that you can devise a better law code than what we find in the Torah, whatever you come up with will only serve to bring you to a place of further bondage before a perfect, holy, and righteous God. You will not be able to escape his judgment, the judgment of a perfect, righteous God, because the standard that we measure up to is not a standard of another person and how good they are. The standard is the perfect righteousness of God, and none of us stand up to that. Ultimately, it isn't the law that is the problem. It's just that the law does a really good job exposing what the problem is, and the problem is us. The problem is sin within us. For the wages of sin, Paul says in Romans 6.23, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. What we find when we come to passages like this is that under the law, we are all dead in sin, and only in Christ is there forgiveness and life. You see, when it all comes down to it, we don't really need to try and figure out what emasculated means in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. Scholars aren't really sure. We don't really know what the assembly of the Lord is. It can remain obscure. We may never fully understand what that term memzer means that is translated illegitimate. We don't need to try to come up with a genetic test to try to determine who the Moabites and the Ammonites are or to fully define what wicked things are so that we can try and keep ourselves from all those things. The purpose of the law is to render you and I guilty before God so that we might find righteousness in Christ. You see, all the religions that we find in the world, whether it's the sacred religion of something like Judaism or the secular religions of something like wokeism, they leave you and I in the same place. Guilty before a holy God. Those religious things, they cannot make you right before a holy God. They reveal how guilty we are before him and how much of a need we have for his forgiveness and his grace that is found only in one place. It's only found at the foot of Calvary's cross, at the nail-pierced feet of Christ. You know, really, there's, there's so much more that I would love to say about this passage. I'd love to talk about the fact that there are Moabites and prostitutes in the family tree of Jesus, revealing just how gracious and awesome God is in Christ. Or that one of the early notable converts to Christianity in the book of Acts was an emasculated Ethiopian. But those stories are going to have to wait for another day. I don't have the time to get into those today. Today, I think it is enough to say that under the law, we are all emasculated and mutilated illegitimate and lost. We are all dead in sin, and only in Christ Jesus is there forgiveness and life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, and I hope that you know that truth. Father God, I pray that you would minister that reality to anyone that will hear this message, whether it's on the day that it releases or it's months or years from now. Lord, reveal that whatever thing we are trying to do, whatever law code we're trying to follow, whether it's trying to find the, follow the ancient law codes of something like Judaism or it's trying to follow the 21st century law codes of some crazy woke sort of thing. None of those things are going to make us right before you. They only reveal how far we are from you and how much we need your grace. And that grace is only found in you, Jesus. And we thank you that you who knew no sin became sin for us that we might receive your righteousness. God, help us to put our trust fully completely in you, not in some other method of trying to be better or do good, but to put our trust entirely in you.
that you took our sin so that we might receive your righteousness. Lord, help us to trust in you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.